Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic Church. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is a place to undo some misinformation. If there's one thing that I understood, I experienced as I was looking into the Catholic Church, it was how little I knew about Catholicism. I'd heard rumors, I'd read things, I'd been taught things in adult Sunday school and growing up in different evangelical, non-denominational churches. But when it came to the truth about the Catholic Church, as I began to journey into the Catholic Church, I realized I had no idea. I believed a lot of misinformation, a lot of fake news, in quotes. This podcast is meant to fill that gap. We have Catholic conversations from real Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this episode is a fantastic one. I'm joined by Journey Home host and longtime founder and president of the Coming Home Network International, Marcus Grodi. If you don't know who Marcus Grodi is, if you're one of my non-Catholic or new Catholic listeners, you're in for a real treat. Marcus has spent the last 20 plus years listening to the stories of converts like myself. I was on his show a couple years ago and shared my story. It was a fantastic opportunity. It was a huge blessing. It was an incredible experience. Marcus has spent 20 plus years doing just that listening to, as he says, gazillions of conversion stories. So, I sit down and we mine those stories. I pick his brain, as I put it, to try and figure out why people become Catholic. That's this episode. Why become Catholic? Marcus has some incredible insights and spent an hour and a half with me unpacking this idea. It's a long episode, but it's a fantastic one. Please stick around, please listen, and please enjoy. Welcome back to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I'm joined this week by Marcus Grodi. Marcus is the author of a number of fantastic books, including Life from Our Land. He is the founder and president of the Coming Home Network International. And for 20 plus years, he's been the host of the Journey Home television program on EWTN TV. Marcus, I can't tell you how excited I am to have you on this episode. It's going to be a fantastic one. Welcome. Well, Keith, what a great privilege. Uh, for me that you invited me to join you on your podcast. Uh, it's amazing the the way the Lord has provided for us at this time in history with the internet and other uh, great means of communication, and we've got to make sure we're using them for the good of the Lord, the good of the church, and it's, it's a great privilege to be with you in the way in which you're using this great medium. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That's a high compliment. You know, it's kind of funny because I was on your show a number of a couple of years back now, I think, yeah, and right. and and that was born out of me. I mean, I started a blog, kind of talking about my own conversion story, and truly just working out 
working that out psychologically and spiritually for myself. And the Lord, I mean, blessed me in unimaginable ways through that blog. People began to read it and enjoy it and share it, and I couldn't believe what was happening. And, <laughs> right? and that led me to your doorstep. And then, and then, yep. and then you know, I took a second gamble on a podcast, and that thing's taken off too. So, I mean, the Lord, like you say, it's, it's completely humbling to be on the receiving end of so much grace sometimes. The, the Lord is, I mean, this is an understatement, of course. Uh, truly amazing. If you look at the entire history of humanity, if you go way back in humanity, God had put a um, a gift of grace into a person's ear centuries and centuries and centuries ago about how to build great buildings. And the problem is we saw that these people took this gift at architecture and eventually decided to build themselves a tower so that they could be their own gods. Of course, we read about that in Genesis 11, in which God said these guys who are building the Tower of Babel because they want to be their own, they want to elevate themselves. He had to stop this, so in fact, he used their technology and divided the languages. The history of humanity, you see a variety of times when God takes an initiative to drop into the path of humanity a gift of grace, a gift of knowledge, whether it's writing, whether it's electricity, whether it's technology, whether it's all the different gifts that God has given to humanity, which in the end we stand before him for being stewards of what we did with those great gifts. And we live right now, Keith, at a time when humanity has been gifted with these technologies, which we didn't discover, we didn't invent, they were gifts of God, but how did we use them? And you know as well as I do that the whole Internet <clears throat> right now is being used in many ways to bring down our culture. In fact, I think it might be, in the end, one of the main ways in which our culture is undercut, even many aspects of the church. But that's why, Keith, things like you're doing are great, because you're taking these gifts that God has given you for his glory. And God bless you in your work. <laughs> well, thank you. That was That's a, a fantastic reflection, and I haven't even asked you a question yet. So this is going to be a great episode. It's fun to join you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you know what? I, I remember, I don't know if this made it into the episode. I've heard you say this lots of times before on your show, how when you began doing your program on EWTN television, you said that it often was the mothers who would write into the show, and then it was the grandmothers who'd write into the show. And you, you joke that your audience is, is aging out. But everybody that I know, my age group, loves the Journey Home program. We just watch it on YouTube, probably. <laughs> so... I'm <laughs> I, I, like I, I, that comment, Keith, came from I'd be traveling and, of course, being caught up thinking that I'm the next greatest thing that ever walked the earth. And someone would walk up to me and say, Mr. Grodi, your program is my mother's favorite, which means <laughs> that, that person didn't watch it. It was their mother that watched it. And my jokingly thing was that now it's their grandmother's. And it's just a call to remember what... St. John the Baptist always said, he must increase, we must decrease. And it's not about us, it's about our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Oh, that's that's a fantastic. That's a great. That's a great word, as we used to say uh, as Pentecostals. That's a good word. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so I'm sure that that most Catholic listeners will know exactly who you are and have heard of the Journey Home and watched the Journey Home and have some idea what the Coming Home Network is. But for our non-Catholic friends or some of those new Catholics who are listening, could you take us through maybe a bit of your own conversion story and where you came from and how the Coming Home Network and the Journey Home evolved out of that? Okay, Keith, I'm going to answer that, but I'm looking at the clock, so I'll make sure I do it short of an hour, because that's a heavy burden to share all that. Not because I'm so important, but because God in his, oh Lord, in his mercy. Um, <laughs> I'll just say that to give as, as succinct of a story, um, you know, I was, for the first seven years of my life, I was completely unchurched. And then some neighbors invited my family maybe when I was about five years old, to get involved in the Lutheran Church. And then at age seven, after two years of our involvement, I was baptized in catech- baptized a Lutheran. So in other words, I didn't receive baptism until I was seven years old. <clears throat> and then from age seven until I went away to college, I was very active in the Lutheran Church. I was confirmed, catechized, confirmed. I was involved with youth group and all the usual things. And actually knew the Lutheran faith probably as well as any young person in the Lutheran Church. I knew it well. I can't blame the Lutheran Church. If there's any blame, it of course falls on me. But I didn't really know Jesus Christ. And and I don't know. that In my Journey Home program, I've heard that many, many, many times. There's this mystery of being brought up into churches where we get an intellectual understanding of faith, but it doesn't touch our hearts for some reason. And of course, that's God's timing and God's grace. And often I've come to believe that the reason many of my guests went through their difficult times is because God later in their lives intended that that experience would prepare them for what he had for them later. And I look at that in my own life. So um, when I went away to college, I was a very nominal Lutheran. I really wasn't interested in the church when I landed at college, I went to an engineering school called Case Western Reserve University. Um, for three years, I didn't attend church except when I was home for Christmas to appease my mother. But I was a scientific materialist. I had fully bought into the idea that I could explain all of reality, all of life through science. I was studying only science, biology, chemistry, math, physics. Uh, I graduated as a plastics engineer. My, if anything, my minor was in mathematics, which I, I still love to this day. But I had become uh, very distant in my journey. I became the beer-chugging champion of Case Western Reserve University. <laughs> I think at that point the Lord said, this is enough, because in the summer between my junior and senior year, I had a life-changing conversion to Jesus Christ. And I know looking back, it has to be one of the most important moments of my life. I know that it changed me. I could give a thousand reasons. And to this day at age 67, that summer when I was 21 years old, God, by his mercy and grace, called me home. And, and it changed everything. I began praying every day, reading scripture every day, discerning how to live more according to his will. 
when I went, I was pre-med at, at my school and my senior year, I decided not to go into med school. I went into engineering, but immediately began thinking, how can I serve the Lord? I got involved with Young Life, a Protestant youth ministry. I began writing music, uh, all kinds of things. But eventually, in that time period, I discerned that God was calling me to go to seminary. So I abandoned my career in engineering. And when I was 26 years old, left engineering to go to Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And I chose that seminary because it was a very faithful internet interdenominational evangelical Protestant seminary that was also committed to young life, producing young life leaders. I thought I would be a youth leader for the rest of my life. When I arrived at seminary, I immediately fell into the pastoral track. And during <laughs> seminary is usually three years. It took me five years because I had to keep working on the side, but they were some of the greatest years of my life. And in the study of, of scripture, the original languages, theology, I absolutely loved it. And it made me fall more and more and more in love with Jesus Christ. And when I graduated in 83, I was ordained first a congregationalist, and then very quickly I switched to Presbyterianism and served for nine years as a Presbyterian pastor. I met my wife, Marilyn. We were married. Uh, we had our first John, first son, John Mark. We were married in 86. He was born in later in 87, and then our son Peter was born in 91. And to this day, I, I, if things had not changed, I'd be a Protestant minister to this day. The issues that opened my heart to the Catholic Church at first didn't involve the Catholic Church. They involved something very, very significant in my life, and that was I knew that I stood before God for how, what I taught my people. That scripture that says it's better to have a mill wheel put around your neck and being thrown in the lake than to mislead one of my little ones, I took seriously. And when I got into the pulpit or got in front of a group and a podium to teach scripture, I knew that what I taught them, I was responsible before God. And in Protestant churches, usually the congregation may already have a conviction of what it is necessary to be saved, but they trust that their minister has done his homework. And in a Protestant world, if you aren't preaching what the congregation wants you to preach, you can be fired the next day. So you're torn between, do I give them what they want or do I give them what they need? And I was convicted to give them what they needed. And so the reason this became an issue was because I began to realize that, I'm so sorry, let me turn this off. I began to realize that what I taught from the pulpit on any given Sunday was different than what the other ministers in town were te teaching. And we believed in Jesus Christ, and we believed in the authority of Scripture, but yet we never agreed on anything. I, I began to see this when I was in seminary, when all the seminarians were from 45 different denominations, we were all evangelicals. We all believed in Jesus Christ. We all believed in the fallibility of Scripture. But there were so many things that we disagreed about. What it, who was Jesus Christ? What was the Trinity? Uh, all the other doctrines. Even what was necessary to be saved. We couldn't agree. And so 
when I was a pastor, I, I began to realize Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, what I was teaching from my pulpit was different from the pastor, even across the street, who was teaching from the same scripture. And yet, how did I know that what I was teaching to my people was true? No. For me, that was a big issue. And eventually what happened is I resigned from my pulpit. If I couldn't be absolutely certain that what I was teaching was true, as opposed to just my opinion, then I had no right to be in the pulpit. And so I decided to resign from my pulpit and return to school to get a, a doctorate's degree in medical ethics. I wanted to combine my science with my theology and get involved with medical ethics, genetic ethics. And so that's what I did. I resigned from my pulpit. I gave them six months, but I was going to return to school. And so while I was still preaching on Sundays, I returned to school and have Case West Reserve again. And I was getting a PhD in molecular biology. Well, so I'm on the week, I'm, I'm preparing for serum, for, um, sermons on Sundays, but on the week I'm studying genetics and molecular biology and all this stuff. But one day, while I was sitting there at Case Western getting ready for class, drinking my morning coffee, I bought a copy of the Plain Dealer newspaper. And I usually didn't do that, but I was kind of bored, so I picked up this newspaper. And I noticed in the right-hand corner of one of the pages an announcement that a Catholic theologian would be speaking at a local Catholic church. And the name of this Catholic theologian was Scott Hall. <clears throat> now, I had gone to seminary with a guy by the name of Scott Hall. He and I were classmates. He was married to Kimberly. I was a single guy. He spent all his time uh, studying. I spent most of my time playing basketball. <laughs> so we often didn't cross paths. So we had the same classes together. He at one time tried to convince me to become even more of a Calvinist than I was, and he was a bit too intense for me, so I kind of stayed away from him. But anyway, I had heard to the grapevine that he had become Catholic, and I thought it was a lie. I couldn't believe it. Not Scott Hahn. That's stupid. So I put it out of my mind. But here's Scott Hahn speaking at a local church, so I decided, okay, I'll go listen to him. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's the Scott Hahn I knew. So on a Sunday, I drove about an hour and a half up to Cleveland, I went to this Catholic church, and frankly, I'd never been in a Catholic church before in my life. I never even thought about becoming a Catholic. I didn't know how to enter a Catholic church. I mean, what do you do? Why do Catholics wash their hands every time they walk into Mass? <laughs> so I didn't went on. Everybody was getting into their pews in different ways. There wasn't one way. Some people knelt. Some people kind of jumped in. It was all kinds of different ways. So I snuck in knowing that they knew I was a Protestant. So I snuck in and squatted down and watched. And sure enough, Scott Hahn got up in front. There were lights everywhere. It was as if there was a celebrity in this church. And there was Scott, my old classmate. And he gave the talk on the uh, uh, on the four cups. It was a great cup. In fact, about two Sundays after that, I used it in one of my sermons. <laughs> but afterwards, afterwards, I went up to Scott, and he was surrounded by groupies. And I went up and raised my hand, and he recognized me, and he said, Marcus, that's you? I said, yeah. And he said, what are you doing? I blah, 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 blah. And I said, I came here to just hear you. I've got to get going. And Scott said, now, over there on that table is the tape of my conversion. Now, to this day, I can't remember whether he gave it to me or, or whether I still had to buy it. 
But the point was I went over and got the tape, also picked up another book that looked interesting, a book by Carl Keating called Catholicism and Fundamentalism. I picked that up, jumped in the car, and drove the hour and a half home. On the, I was not interested in the Catholic Church. On halfway home, I had to pull my pickup truck over to the side of the road because Scott had said something in his story that I had to check out in my Bible because I thought that was a lie. <laughs> he, someone had come to Scott and said, what's the pillar and bulwark of truth? And, and, of course, Scott gave his answer, which would have been my answer. Well, the Bible. And the person said to Scott, well, but the Bible doesn't say that. And Scott says, what do you mean? And the guy said, turn to 1 Timothy 3.15. So Scott turned to 3.15. 1 Timothy 3.15, and what does it say? It says, the pillar and bulwark of truth is the church. Well, when I heard that, I had to pull over and check it out, because I had never seen that before. I had taught and preached through 1 Timothy many times. I never saw that. I turned over my Bible, and sure enough, it was there. I was convinced that some Catholic in the middle of the night had slipped in and slipped into that story. <laughs> I never saw that before. That was the beginning of my journey. It didn't make me Catholic. It actually made everything worse. Because if the church is the pillar and bulwark of truth, then which church? The Presbyterian church? My local Presbyterian church? The Methodist, Baptist, Episcopalian, Pentecostal, your, your former church? Which church? Certainly not the Catholic church. That began two years of intense study. I probably read every book about the Catholic Church that was ever written since Adam and Eve. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about, Keith. I mean, when you're on this journey, you read everything, get your hands on. And oftentimes, at the beginning, I'm trying to find every book so I can prove it's wrong. Eventually, I'm starting to read every book because I'm so hungry for what's going on that I, I've just got to have more. In the end, two books by... John Henry Newman convinced me to become Catholic. The first was his own conversion story, the Apologia Pro Vita Sua. He had been challenged in the newspaper, <clears throat> so he had to defend himself. And when I read that book, I was absolutely convinced I could no longer be Protestant. Because sola scriptura is not scriptural. It's not theologically sound, philosophically sound. It just doesn't make sense historically. So I knew I could no longer be Protestant. But at that point, I couldn't be Catholic. All the stuff. What am I going to do with all the stuff? You know, the statues and pictures and devotions and all the... Um, I, I, it was hard. Again, reading and reading and reading and discussing and arguing, I read Newman's The Essay on Development of Doctrine. And in the middle of that, there's a section on the authenticity of the authority of Peter. And there's one thing he says, I wish I had it in front of me to quote, but he said, it's not as much of a problem that the church defined the Trinity and the divinity of Christ in the third and fourth centuries, but that the church had recognized the authority of Peter before those. So in other words, the, there's plenty of evidence that, that bishops both east and west were recognizing the authority of the Bishop of Rome as the um, follower of Peter, before the church defined the Trinity, before the church clarified the divinity of Christ, even before the church clarified the canon of the scriptures, it was the 
the authority of Peter. And at that mm -hmm. point, I had to be. Like, and so Marilyn and I entered the church in 1992, and I'm continuing with your question. So we came into the church in 92. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I mean, I'm I'm a former Protestant. I, I, had, I had started this PhD program, which I decided, no, I'm not going to continue because I'm becoming Catholic. I was, it's a long story, but the main thing was I got invited to work for Franciscan University. But the thing was, when I was a Protestant, I had never heard of a Protestant minister becoming Catholic other than Scott Hahn. Of course, he's crazy. So, <laughs> you know, I'd never heard of this. I'd heard of, a of Catholic priests becoming Protestant, Catholic nuns becoming Protestant. The only Protestants I knew to become Catholic were ones who married into the church. So what about these Protestant ministers? When I became a Catholic, all of a sudden, I began meeting Protestant ministers who were, had either become Catholic or on the journey. Father Ray Ryland, Stephen Wood, there of course Steve Ray, Rod Bennett, the whole long list. And I started a, in those days, it was long before the internet and even emails, I started a male, if you will, network of converts. And the goal was to produce a network of converts who could stand beside others on the journey so that convert clergy could help clergy who are on the journey. A Baptist convert could help a, a Baptist minister on the journey. And we started that in 1993, never anticipating that it would become more than something on the side. But what happened was it, it grew by the mercy of God. In 1993, no, excuse me, 96, I had been working at Franciscan University for a number of years. I was invited by Mother Angelica to come to Francis to come to EWTN, I was on the Johnette's Bankovich's program to talk about the work of the Coming Home Network and how it was growing, how many Protestant ministers were being drawn home to the church. Mother Angelica's producer heard me give my testimony. She invited me in December of 1996 to be on her program. Dr. Kenneth Howell and I were on her program talking about our own conversions as well as the work of the Coming Home Network. And during that program, Mother turned to me and says, you know, you got to come back. And I wasn't sure what she meant. I figured she meant on her program. Well, within a couple of weeks, I got a phone call inviting me to do a program in which I interviewed converts. And her reason for the Journey Home program is because she would receive so many emails from Catholics whose children and siblings had left the church, and they were bemoaning the fact that how could they ever come home and she felt that if every week i would interview a convert it would help catholics have hope that their children and siblings would come home to the church i accepted her invitation i had no television background actually no television ambition whatsoever um but i accepted it because i had a different goal than she did my goal for the journey home is to be able to proclaim the truth and beauty of the Catholic Church to our separated brethren. I felt if they could hear the conversion and reversion of people to the Catholic Church, it would help open their heart to the Church. So we started that in September of 1997. And so as you can calculate, we've been doing the Journey Home program for a few years. <laughs> that is a fantastic story. Thank you for sharing that. All I can say is I don't deserve a bit of it. Our Lord has a great sense of humor. <laughs> 
So you've hosted the Journey Home program for uh, a number of years, as you say, and you spent that time listening to conversion stories from people of all different backgrounds. And I'm calling this episode of the podcast, Why Become Catholic? Because I really want to pick your brain and distill with you, first of all, what are some of the major reasons that you hear people talk about becoming Catholic? Are there are there common common reasons that you hear over and over again, and, and what would those reasons be? Yeah, it's okay. I mean, that is a fascinating question. I I wish I was a more intellectual person. Uh, I'm really just an old football player trying to keep from looking like a football. But <laughs> and, I, and I'm I'm joking, but I'm also a bit serious because I think the data that's available in the Journey Home program would be great. Uh, uh, fodder for somebody doing a PhD program, uh, uh, you know, in other words, to take all that data, because I always tell my guests when I begin the program, I generally tell my guests that I understand myself only as a box keeper. As the host of the journey home, I start the program on time. I end the program on time. I keep us within the topic, but it's my guests program. When you run the program, it was your program. And so my goal is to help you, help my guests tell their story. And so I sit back and I listen through the ears of a Catholic and through the ears of a non-Catholic. And the only time I interrupt is when I think there is some clarification. So when I hear the stories, of course, my, my audience may not know that I don't know the stories before I do the Journey Home program. I insist only on my staff making sure that the guests have been well checked out, there's no red flags. But when I sit down with my guests, when I sat down with you, I did not know your story. And so I was hearing it at the same time as the audience at home. And to me, that makes it very genuine so I can respond in a genuine way. But in that way, I'm amazed when I listen to how the Holy Spirit draws people home. And it, on the one hand, there are as many ways that the Holy Spirit has used to bring people home as there are Journey Home episodes times a thousand. Hmm. Everyone is uniquely different. Otherwise, we would have ended the Journey Home program 20 years ago. But everyone is, there's something different something unique. Every person, of course, is as unique as their fingerprints and maybe more unique because we come with different sets of parents, different sets of experiences, religious experiences, um, all the different things. And God uses those in many ways. Many times, Keith, on my program, people will say, this is what opened my heart to the church. And I want to say, okay, but you people at home don't do this. (laughs) This is what the Holy Spirit used in this person's life, but I don't recommend it. I recently had an atheist who, by reading um, some of the most absurd atheist philosophers, Nietzsche, through reading Nietzsche, it opened his heart to the Christian faith. And so, do I recommend people go out there and read Nietzsche? No. No, no, no. no, no. You, You can set that aside. But that's what God used in that person's life. In fact, that was a guest who was brought up in Iran, who was a nominal 
Muslim growing up who immigrated to the United States, became a flaming atheist, was committed to be a communist, was reading Nietzsche and all and Marx and all these people, but in the midst of that, the Lord zapped him and opened his heart. He eventually became Christian and eventually became Catholic. So, on the one hand, what I'm saying, Keith, is that every story is so absolutely unique. Praise God. Everyone listening has a unique story. Praise God. You and I both have unique stories. Praise God. On the other hand, there seems to be some commonality. On the one hand, and Keith, I know you can affirm some of this. On the one hand, sometimes people start to see that there's a problem where they're at, that their particular denomination or tradition is going through crazy things. I don't want to point fingers at any particular denomination. You know, I was once taught that when you point fingers, you got three pointing back at yourself. So <laughs> you know that you know that story. So I'm heavy, you know, I can't pick out the denom- but there are some denominations today, non-Catholic denominations, that have basically cast their fate to the wind and see that morality has become democratic. When they gather for their annual meeting, it's the most votes that determine what is true. This is bizarre, but it happens all across America with probably a hundred different denominations every year. And so a lot of people say there's something wrong with this picture. And so they began to look. Most of them do not believe the Catholic Church is the place to look, so they look everywhere else, as I did, until eventually somebody opens their mind and eyes and ears to the Catholic Church, either through watching The Journey Home or reading a book or listening to a CD, and the journey begins. And so they began because they were disgruntled with where they were, and then they discovered the beauty of the Catholic Church. Um, Sometimes they're totally content where they are. Everything seems fine. But then someone or something challenges their contentment. And that's like a stone in the shoe, as the old, <laughs> you know, uh, the song from Godspell. And there's a, and it just bugs them over time. And so they begin to figure out what's wrong with this. And they begin to look. So they begin, maybe they're reading away. Maybe the stone that somebody threw in their life was, hey, do you ever read anything by the early church fathers? Well, who were they? Early church fathers, you mean John Wesley? <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, you mean Azusa Street? No, 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 no. Some, way before Azusa Street. Okay, well, who are the early church fathers? Oh, you mean John Knox? No, 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 no. Way before John Knox. Okay, well, who? Well, we're talking about Irenaeus, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, uh, Clement. And so, whoa, I never heard of those. So they begin reading, reading the early church fathers, and all of a sudden, boom, they begin realizing a couple things. Number one, They don't find their present convictions, their Protestant convictions, in the writings of these early church fathers. Second of all, they say, well, okay, what sounds most like what these early Christians believed, how they worshipped, their sacraments, their convictions, and pretty soon they say, whoa, there's the Catholic Church. And so they're drawn that, you know, you mentioned Rod Bennett in our previous conversation. You know, he's a great example. In fact, I still always recommended, recommend Rod Bennett's book on, uh, on the early church fathers. 
And so often they're drawn to the church, the reading of the early church fathers. But maybe the two biggest issues, all these many things, maybe summarize into two issues. Number one, the issue of the beauty and depth of the Catholic Church. When people look into it, they look, read the catechism, they read, to me, the documents, official documents of the church, they read the spiritual writers, St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, uh, Garagula Grange, just great Catholic writers, and, and John Paul II, Benedict the Sixteenth. I just finished reading the second volume of Benedict the Sixteenth's book on Jesus. It's awesome, awesome, mm-hmm. awesome. You read those books, you realize there's a truth, a depth here that I don't find anywhere else. When I was in seminary, I remember one particular day we had two speakers, well-known speakers, successful Christian writers. In the morning was a writer by uh, the name of, um, I want to say Richard Baxter, but that's not right. Anyway, he wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. And Richard Baxter, that's not right. He's That's the English separatist in the 17th century. Anyway, <laughs> uh, my, it's, my mind is blown from working all day. Anyway, so this speaker speaks about, in his book, Celebration Discipline, which was a bestseller amongst non-Catholic Christians, about discovering for the first time fasting and prayer and uh, intimacy with God through the spiritual life the three ways of the spiritual life. And I'd never heard about any of this. This was awesome. And I remember reading this book and hearing this author. I think, oh, this is awesome, 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 awesome. So we went to lunch, and I'm thinking, all the seminarians, oh, wasn't that great? Wasn't that awesome? Wasn't that cool? After semin- after lunch, we came back to the second speaker, who I didn't even know was Catholic. The second speaker was a, a, a man by the name of Henry Nowen. <laughs> to Henry Nowen, and he's talking about the three ways of the spiritual life as making your heart the home of Jesus Christ. And I was absolutely floored, and I ended up reading a bunch of books by Henry Nowen, and I walked away thinking the difference between these guys is that the first speaker was a, his theology was a mile wide and an inch deep. And the theology of Henry Nouwen was to a depth I couldn't even reach. And it took me another 15 years to discover that the difference was that Henry Nouwen was dipping into the beauty of the Catholic Church, the beauty of the writings, the beauty of the theology, the beauty of the history, the beauty of all the aspects of the Catholic Church that is guided by the Holy Spirit. The second Aspect. So there's the beauty of the church, and of course the other aspect is the authority of the church. There's thousands of Protestant groups out there, non-Catholic groups, that believe it, you know, in great sincerity in Jesus Christ and in Scripture, and by God's mercy and grace, God guides them and will bless them. And the people in the pews of these non-Catholic churches who sincerely trust their leaders, I trust and pray that God will have mercy on their souls, because... Most of them don't know any better. But these denominations, though they trust Scripture, completely differ in every single aspect of theology. There's not one point of doctrine 
that every non-Catholic Christian agrees on. Not one. Not one. They don't even agree on who Jesus was. They don't agree on Scripture. They don't agree on the Trinity. They don't agree on coordination. They don't agree on the church. They don't even agree on what's necessary for salvation. And there's a cloud in their minds in which they don't recognize there's something wrong with this picture. They just live their lives with the assumption that because we're all different, of course, then God, by his mercy, has provided all these different denominations to meet the needs of the great vast majority of people. Well, the, the problem is we have this infestation of individualism that justifies me as the full interpreter of what is true. And so, the, for me, that brings us why so many of my guests end up saying it's either the authority of the church or it's the beauty of the church. And I guess that would pretty much summarize all the major issues of the journey home program. <laughs> That's and I and I apologize, Keith, for waxing so eloquently on these things and not giving you a chance to comment. Oh no, this is I'm here just to, I'm here to listen to you. This is fantastic. That's such a great uh, distilling of what you've heard over the years. I I I think of so many things. I mean, I think of when you say beauty. I had Lawrence Feingold on the podcast a few yeah. episodes ago, and just his story of the physical beauty. I mean, he was, him and his wife were, were doing sculpture work in Italy and, and, and looking at those sculptures led him to ask questions about the theology and the thinking of the creators of those sculptures. And that led him, you know, the, the physical beauty of the Catholic Church brought him in, right? Yep. And yep. I, I think of, I, I had, I spoke to uh, Dr. Abigail Favalli, recently, who I know you've spoken to. I know that she's going to be on your show. It'll be airing shortly, I think. Right. And something that, that her and I talked about that resonated so deeply with both of us is that you talk about the depth of the Catholic Church and the beauty of the theology of the Catholic Church. Um, as we were talking, we both came to a place where we recognized that that we were the kind of evangelical Christians that, I mean, my theology was made up of the authors that I read, the evangelical authors that I read, I mean, Dallas, Dallas Willard or N.T. Wright or these kind of guys, yeah. uh, Eugene Peterson, like these popular writers. And my theology was, was based on these writers. And when I came to an issue, we talked about the issue of, um, of like same-sex marriage, in, in our different denominations. When we came to an issue like that, well, you had to read everything you could and then hope as a non-denominational evangelical that you could, you had it right, that the authors you read were right on that. And, and both of us talked about becoming Catholic. And then I often describe it as being able to relax into the arms and the authority of the Catholic Church. Right, like here's the theology that's been worked out over two thousand years. That if you believe what the church says about itself, it's protected by the Holy Spirit from error. I no longer had to read every single theologian that's written something about an issue like same-sex marriage to work out what my position was. I had to relax and trust into the arms of this incredible, beautiful Catholic Church that the church had it right and was protected from from teaching error. Does that make sense? Oh, it, it really does. You know, our Lord, speaking to an agrarian audience, um, 
used agrarian images. And so, in that sense, many moderns don't always get the images that our Lord used because he was using agrarian images. So, I'll use an image that that many moderns will be very familiar with who have dogs at home, uh, even though the dogs aren't even living a dog life because, uh, well, just the craziness of the towns we live in. Uh, you know, someday our great-great-grandkids are going to really wonder what they have to do with these great big piles, piles, mile high of little plastic bags full of dog do. <laughs> no. That everybody in the town has filled up by walking their dogs and picking up the dog poo and putting them in plastic bags and throwing them out. They're going to be they're going to be filled a mile high. What's what? You know that's for the next generation to worry about. We don't need to worry about. But anyway, I'm joking about that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, an example is when you go buy dog food, a big, big, big bag of dog food. There's a zip tie on the top of that, a little piece of paper that runs the dog with a string on it. And it's almost impossible to open that bag unless you figure out how to pull the string. And once you pull the string on that little piece of zip tie, it'll open that bag and you can't stop it. It zips all the way. The reason I use this imagery is that's the problem, Keith, with all these these theologies that say, well, that's true, but not this. And that's true, but not this. And that's true. And, and when they decide to lift themselves up as their own authority, see, I agree with the Catholic Church here and here and here, but I don't agree with this. As soon as they go there... They're pulling the zip tie on a dog bag, and it unwraps everything. It unwraps. As soon as we lift ourselves up to think we know better than how the Holy Spirit has guided the church, the magisterium in union with Peter, it's like a zip tie, whether it's the Trinity leading Unitarianism, whether it's divinity of Christ leaning to how he was just a great guy, or all the different moral theologies today, I mean, we're in a weird world in, in which the, the enemy has, has poisoned our mind to where we think we know better than what's true. And if there's never been a time in the history of Christianity when we don't need the authority of the church to guide us into what is true. Hmm. You know, when I was when I was looking at the Catholic Church, I remember one of the things this was exactly one of the things that I, I was I was thinking about and I brought to my pastor at the time Matthew eighteen, uh fifteen to seventeen, which talks about if a brother or sister, it depends on the translation, but it disagrees with you or sins against you or there's a disagreement, well you first you know, go go tell one other person, and if that doesn't work, go tell three people, and if that doesn't work, go go tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen to the church, well, then that becomes a bigger issue. And I remember bringing this to my non-denominational evangelical pastor at the time, and I said, I said, in the context of our, you know, non-denominational denomination, what does this mean? Because if I have an issue with something this church is teaching, well, I can go down the street to the next church and and find a church that agrees with me. And I don't remember what I, I for, to this day I can't remember what his response to that was, but it was it was the equivalent of a shoulder shrug, a kind of you know, well, I don't know, I couldn't tell you what that means, but well, it's not, but it's not a big deal, kind of. I'll thing. tell you, and you hit a very important scripture. Um. 
you know, right around that scripture is, I think it's in Matthew 18, the very important verse that most non-Catholic Christians have memorized. And that is, wherever two or more gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of you. And for many, many non-Catholic Christians, that is the definition of church. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of you. So when I left seminary, I thought I was going to plant churches. And to plant a church, I just needed a couple folk. We'd gather together in a Bible study, somebody's living room, that's a church. And it would grow. And we hoped it would grow to 100, 200, and then we'd split and form another one. Wherever two or more gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of you. We define that as a church. The problem is the verse you talk about is totally contrary to that. Because if I got a problem with you, Keith, that verse says I got to come to you first. I shouldn't go right to the internet and rip you to shreds, right? I should come to you privately first and present my problem so that you can respond to me directly, not on the internet, but directly. And if you don't listen to me, then still, before I go to the internet, I got to get two or three others to gather. Because Jesus said, wherever two or more gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of you. So we, we do that privately. Well, I understood two or three gathered together as a church. So wait a second. What's this other thing Jesus is talking about? Because if only two or three are necessary, then that should have stopped it. But he says, no, if that doesn't work, then you go to the church. What's he talking about? There's something other than merely two or three gathered together to justify a church. And as you said, Keith, that verse itself begs the question. There's something more, something more authoritative, more established by Christ and his apostles, more as Jesus promised in John 14, 15, and 16, he would send the Holy Spirit to guide into all truth. You know, we Christians took that to mean everybody. Well, if that means everybody, then the Holy Spirit is major confused, or nobody's listening to the Holy Spirit, or our Lord was speaking to the twelve, or to the eleven, because one would betray Jesus, to the eleven, promising that after he had died, resurrected, and ascended, the Holy Spirit would come and guide those eleven, and then they added the twelfth, Matthias, to be the foundation for this authoritative body that would be the church. Not just whatever two or more gathered and can and conclude democratically what is true. And that's a confusion that our our world is in today. <laughs> you know, and that and that verse then drew me to looking into well, what did the what did the church that the the apostles were a part of look like, right? And of course, that leads you into the early church fathers, which is then when you recognize or when I recognize that the church that that I thought was two or three gathered in an upper room, these little tiny churches spread everywhere with no, you know, local leadership, no, no hierarchical structure, nothing like the Catholic Church. Well, well what they had yeah. was overhead projected screens <laughs> and projected the music for each of their gatherings. Um, and then they just kind of, they didn't have any order. They just kind of let everybody speak out freely, whatever they felt, whatever the Holy Spirit was guiding them to speak. Isn't that true, Keith? And, but they had flags, though, when they spoke in <laughs> tongues. They had to 
Exactly. <laughs> well, and that you know that that verse was something that drove me into looking at the early church. And once you look in the early church, you realize how Catholic the early church was, which right. is is shocking to find out, right? Oh yeah, and I almost hate to say this on the program um, because some people are going to hate me after this. But um, you know, you mentioned earlier that I wrote a book from Life from Our Land, <clears throat> in which I basically try and apply the teachings of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount to our life out here in rural country during this difficult time in which we live. And it was calling for a, a simpler life and a detached life. And be, because I wrote this book, um, I've had the great, great privilege of becoming at least a friend over the internet with another author named Rod Dreher, who wrote The Benedict Option. And I'm a great supporter of Rod, uh, and I know his personal journey. He went from being a nominal evangelical, if you will, to becoming a Catholic, and then during the great scandal of 2002, it really proved too much for his own family and he eventually left the Catholic Church and became Orthodox. And eventually he wrote the book, The Benedict Option, in which he believes we're in a really difficult time, which I agree with him. And he's calling for a return to the, the rules of the Benedict Option to live out their lives. And so at the core, I agree very much with Rod. But I've told him this, and I'm hesitant to mention this on the program, but it kind of fits with what I think we're talking about, Keith. And I do this with all due respect to him and would not want him to consider this a critique of him. But I told him this, that I, I think there's a great flaw in his book that I, ha in the end, have to have an issue with. And that is, in his book, he's, his goal is to unite like-minded, evangelical, traditional, orthodox Christians, orthodox with a small O, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox, his goal is to unite traditionally-minded Christians to work together to form communities in this very difficult time in our culture. And on that side, I agree with him. We do need to follow the encouragement of the Church to reach out to our separated brethren in every way possible, through prayer, through common work, to fight against the evil that's in our culture. I couldn't agree more for the sake of our families. Where I disagree with him, and I have to be careful because, I, again, I don't want him to get the idea that I'm being critical of his goals, but the problem with the Benedict Option, in my mind, is it's calling for an independence of churches. It implies that it doesn't matter what church you belong to, whether you're Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant as long as you're following some code established by the Benedictines. And I know that he's, he has told me this, and I agree with him, that I don't think this was his intent, but I keep trying to say, but when you read the book, that's what it implies. And that's why we see started all around the world evidence of people who are kind of breaking free from their Catholic churches, their Catholic local parishes, their Protestant churches even, and Orthodox churches because they don't agree with the local priest informing their own independent Benedict Option gatherings. At the core, these are well-meaning people, 
But what we end up with, Keith, is this, this question again, where is the authority? Because if you wanted to find traditional Orthodox with a small old Christianity that would unite these people, well, what about marriage? What about divorce? What about remarriage? What about contraception? What about abortion? What about euthanasia? What about the sacraments? What about liturgy? What about ordination? And the list goes on. Who defines what is true in these issues? You know, there's an old saying by Augustine. I think it was Augustine, and I'm not sure we know who really coined it, but the idea that in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, diversity, and all things charity. It's a great phrase, and I think we should try and live that out. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, charity. Okay, that's true. But who defines what's essential? <laughs> who, do, who has the authority to define what's essential? If you're going to go form your little Benedict Option community, as good as that means, and I know Rod had every intent in his heart for what was good, in the end, who defines whether that community is Trinitarian or Unitarian? Who defines whether Our Lady is the Mother of God or merely a woman that our Lord used to bring forth his Son, which is the way many Protestants view Mary? What about the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit God? Not all Christians in the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th centuries agreed with that. Divided the church. You know, uh, did, did, our, did the Holy Spirit come forth from the Father and the Son or just the Father? The church has been divided over that for nearly a thousand years. And so my point is, the issue of authority is very, very important. Which is why Keith, I believe, like myself, that's why we're Catholic. Yeah, that's certainly a major, and you've echoed this too from your experience listening to guests on the journey home. That's a major uh, issue which drives people into the arms of the Catholic Church. Right, 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 right. Well, I have two more questions for you if you have the time. Okay, well, I'm not good at advising people how to invest their money in these difficult times, but anything else I'll try and do my best. (laughs) Okay, so I'm wondering... What do you think, from your position, listening to these conversion stories for the last number of years, what are some of the biggest barriers to people becoming Catholic, to actually making that leap? Well, it's funny that I said on my website, I have a, I'm sure it's a PDF form where I have 16 barriers to conversion. I, I've thought about this for many years. I think the list at first was five, then it became nine, and then now it's up to 16. And uh, they're not just barriers that stand in the way of people becoming Catholic. They're actually barriers that stand in the way of anyone growing in Jesus Christ. And the first most obvious barrier is sin. Uh, In other words, we, I can't speak for anybody but myself, but I, like everyone, I think, struggle with letting go of myself and letting our Lord Jesus be the true Lord of my life in all kinds of areas. And that's a big barrier. It stands in the way. It could be the stuff that we have, whatever it is. We have multiple gods in our life, and that comes down to the issue of sin. Uh, 
But the three top barriers that we came up with is, first of all, ignorance. In other words, the reason a vast majority of people don't become Catholic, I think, is they just don't know. Nobody's told them. Nobody's talked to them. They just don't know the truth of the Catholic Church. And I'm not saying they're invincibly ignorant. That's between God and them. But they just don't know the beauty, the authority, the truth, the history of the Catholic Church. And that prevents, it never crossed my mind. Until I was 40 years old, not one person in my entire life talked to me about the Catholic Church. And I knew a lot of Catholics. I played baseball and football and basketball with lots of Catholics. Went drinking with lots of Catholics. Not one of them ever talked to me about their faith. Not one tried to convert me to the church. Not one. The second barrier is prejudice, for want of a better word. In other words, most non-Catholic Christians, what they know about the church isn't true. And so their understanding of the church has been poisoned by myths, misunderstanding, twists. I'm, I'm sure that wasn't true of you, Keith, but it was certainly true of me. <laughs> You know, what we thought about the church and the Pope and the history and the Inquisition and all these things was just the last thing we would ever think of as the Catholic Church. I mean, that's the that's the whore of Babylon. You know, so a lot of people think that's a barrier. And, and that becomes a barrier because when a man is drawn to the church, everybody else in his life is also convinced that the church is a whore of Babylon. So he's afraid to tell anybody because he's going to lose everybody in his life. And that's, of course, another barrier. But the third barrier, maybe the, one of the biggest barriers, is what we call bad Catholics. And I mean that two things by that. One, even good Catholics look like bad Christians to evangelicals. When you see a good, faithful Catholic woman wearing her mantilla, kneeling before a statue, praying her rosary, to an evangelical, she looks like a poor, superstitious, ignorant fool. Not a Christian, because evangelicals do not understand Catholic truth and Catholic devotion. So Catholics just being good Catholics can sometimes be a barrier to our separated brethren. But on the other hand, we also know there are a lot of Catholics that don't live out their faith very well. We just heard the recent Pew survey that said that less than a third of self-proclaimed Catholics no longer believe and the validity of the Eucharist. They really don't believe that the Eucharist is a body, blood, and soul divinity Christ. That's less than a third of the church believe in its reality. To me, that tells me that the witness of the average Catholic out there is not very convincing to our separated brethren. So we've got those barriers. There's a long list of barriers. Other barriers that stand in the way, Keith, are, especially for Protestant ministers, who truly believed in their heart that God had called them to be a minister, I did. In some ways, my whole self-understanding was based on how I understand God had called me. And then when I discovered the Catholic Church, and I, and I realized I'm married with kids, and I become Catholic, now what am I going to do? Then the question is, well, what about my calling, my vocation? What does that mean? Did I mishear God? What am I to do now? And so from an occupation standpoint, what about the guys that are in their 50s and 60s and they're, become, they're thinking about becoming Catholic, but the only thing they've ever done in their adult life is ministry? What are they going to do now? It's hard to start in your 50s and 60s a brand new career. And so maybe they become priests. Well, the truth is that 
there aren't very many Catholic priests in America, any bishops in America that are really that open to ordaining Protestant married ministers. So it's a real battle for converts to know what they're going to do. And so that becomes a major journey, a major barrier. Another barrier is that, and Keith, maybe, I don't know if you, I can't remember your personal background, but part of the problem is that often in a marriage, one reads all the things about the church and discovers the church, but the other didn't. And so now you've got a husband and wife pitted against one another. Hmm, yeah. And it's much worse for a, a former minister because usually the minister has a master's in divinity, has read Greek and Hebrew, and is able to read all of Newman's and Garrigou Lagrange and St. Thomas and all that stuff. And often the spouse didn't have that background and so really can't read that stuff. So how they can communicate if one is convinced that St. Augustine and St. Thomas and, uh, you know, St. Chromitius of Abolitius convinced him to become Catholic, and yet how do you tell your spouse this? So you have marital barriers, and then you have kids. The kid's saying, Dad, why are you taking us over there to St. What's-its-name? It's got no youth program. It's got nothing, and we're leaving this church. It's got all these great youth programs and ski trips and all this stuff. You know, why are you doing this to us? So there's all kinds of barriers that stand in the way, which is the reason the Coming Home Network exists. Yes, yes, absolutely. Is to not push, pull, or prod anybody, but to stand beside them to help yeah. them to see what God's calling them to do. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. There you know, a couple of things stood out to me there. I, I think what you said about bad Catholics is so fascinating because I haven't heard it put that way before, but you're absolutely right, of course, that even those fantastic, very devout Catholics, that, you know, that woman praying in front of the statue, praying the rosary, that would appear to, say, an evangelical or to probably most Protestants, right, as as a superstitious, terrible Christian, yep. right? Meanwhile, that could be the most devout Catholic on the face of the earth. <laughs> but it's, I just shared a meme on Facebook today from, um, I don't know where it came from, but the idea was what, um, instead of saying Catholics worship Mary, you say, I don't understand Catholic theology. Instead of saying Catholics worship statues, you say, I don't understand Catholic theology. So it's these two columns and, and, it's, it's trying to replace that language. It's, it's supposed to incite a, a chuckle because it just every answer is, you know, I don't understand Catholic theology. But instead of, it's it's supposed to meant, it's meant to tongue-in-cheek encourage people, instead of spouting these myths about Catholicism, just say, hey, I don't understand this. And that's, yep. a, that's a much better response. But you're so right about those bad Catholics. That's so interesting because... I would have, as a non-denominational evangelical, felt the same way. I'm seeing, I'm seeing Catholics who don't take their faith seriously in any stretch of the imagination, but I'm also seeing Catholics who take it very, very seriously, but that to me still looked like some kind of idolatry, some kind of sinful superstition, because I didn't know I was ignorant of, of Catholic theology. Many Catholics, and I... I have great sympathy for lifelong Catholic. God bless them. You know, I have great honor for them and even envy in many ways for lifelong Catholics who believe the reality of the Eucharist since they were children. That's a great blessing uh, for someone like myself that only believed that the Lord's Supper was a symbol until after I was 40. To this day, I'm 67. It may take the rest of my life to truly appreciate 
the reality of the Eucharist. Whenever I stand before the Eucharist, I pray that prayer in Scripture. I believe, but help my unbelief. But many Catholics just don't realize how confusing our devotions are to non-Catholic Christians. When I was on the journey, some well-meaning Christian, well, excuse me, well-meaning Catholic, of course, I had those that gave me the rosary and told me to pray it. And of course, I'm quoting Matthew 6 saying, you know, you don't do this repetitive stuff. I didn't understand. But I had someone give me an infant of Prague and told me to pray it. And I'm telling you, I'm sorry. From my background, the infant of Prague is one of the weirdest things. <laughs> it is, just from my background. Because oh, you Jesus, me both. Yeah. Excuse me, Jesus did not have blonde flowing hair. I mean, it just, you know, it just did not make sense to me. I didn't understand it. And for the longest time I did. And, of course, when I mentioned on the journey home, people would send me all this literature, and I, and I would say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I understand, but you don't understand where I'm coming from. And it didn't help in... I mean, it, it, it didn't cross my mind until I realized something very, very powerful, which I think, Keith, from your background, you appreciate. And that is, from our background, Pentecostal or Presbyterian, our view of the church was very small, American or Ohio or whatever. The Catholic Church is worldwide, and not just worldwide, but transcultural. And so when we bring the church together under one roof, if that's even possible, we would have all of these great historic devotions from great traditions, from great cultures, great distant countries brought together, all of our different nationalities. And so I learned that the infant of Prague was a great, powerful devotion from a certain place on the earth, in a certain culture, in a certain group of people, this was their treasure. And because they're my brothers and sisters, that's why it's my treasure. And the beauty of the church, as I was saying earlier, is that the church doesn't demand that every one of us love every devotion that ever was existed. We'd never have enough time in a day or a week or month to do every devotion. But that's the beauty of the uniqueness of each of us as individuals. The church recognizes that there are devotions that are good for you, Keith, and those are those that touch me, and they're different. And that's the beauty of this diversity of the church. Yeah, well, that's one thing that I absolutely came to love. I mean, I came from, in high school, I was involved in a, a Pentecostal church that that took the idea of repeated prayer being sinful so so far that they wouldn't even pray the Lord's Prayer because to repeat that, yeah. you know, even out of Scripture, even even a prayer out of Scripture that's that's prayed by every other Protestant and Catholic and Orthodox denomination, you know, everybody, we, we wouldn't pray that because that was seen as vain repetition. And I've yeah. come now as as a Catholic, to love the Liturgy of the Hours, the Daily Office, which is all just repeated prayers, right? <laughs> but, but, I mean, that just goes to show the, the depth of the traditions of the Catholic faith, like you're talking about, right? There's, there's something that everyone can plug into, and you don't have to take all of it and try and do all those things, a, a rosary and a, and, a, and a Divine Mercy Chaplet and, and, and a Daily Office and all these things every single day, right? But, but, oh, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm telling you, when I was on my journey and I was trying to learn, okay, I want to yeah, be a good... Yeah, we try to, we try to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, and someone taught me, okay, what you do in the rosary is on Mondays you pray the uh, uh, the first set, you know, the first set of mysteries. 
and then on Tuesday, the sorrowfuls. And then uh, the joyfuls on Mondays, the, the sorrowfuls on Tuesdays, the glorious on Wednesdays. And then on Thursday, the joyfuls. And then on, again on Friday, the sorrowfuls. And then on Saturday, the glorious. And then on Sundays, you do, kind of do the glorious, but it depends on what time you're going to okay, I'm going to do that. But then I started doing it. And then I got distracted and I missed a day. I missed a day. Well, now what do I do? Now I'll be off for the rest of my life. <laughs> You know, do I do I do I skip? You know, my, I'm being facetious, but the point is, how, what do you do? How do you? What's the truth of following Christian Catholic Christian devotions? Of course, the beauty of the Church is God's mercy. Is really God's mercy, and He invites you to take these d- devotions and, and give your heart to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit will open your heart to the beauty of these devotions. And he might say, no, this one isn't where it's at. And, you know, the book that really opened my wife, Marilyn, to the Catholic Church after all of my uh, self-focused and uh, insufficient sharing of the faith with her, the book that really opened her heart, other, we read Seven Story Mountain together, and that was a big uh, step for us uh, in their journey. But she read Tom Howard's book, Evangelical is Not Enough. Hmm. And I cannot promote Scott, Tom Howard enough. It's sad that he will become appreciated only after he's gone. And, and he may not be with us for long. He's going through a rough time. But the beauty of evangelical is not enough. One of the points was about prayer, Keith. And it talked about this strange idea that, that people like you and others looked at Catholics, the repetitiveness of praying the Lord's Prayer and all these things, how stupid that was. That wasn't a, And then what's got to be is inspirational prayer. Um, and so we would gather in our little prayer groups without any text, without any memorized prayer, and we would just kind of pray. Except he pointed out that the majority of Christians, when they pray spontaneous prayer, are nothing but liturgical because they keep repeating the same words Every single time. Lord Jesus, I just really, really just want you to just <laughs> guide us. And Lord God, Father, Almighty Father, you know, if you please open your heart and guide us, just really. And, and when you, if you were to transcribe the most prayers of most spontaneous prayers and looked at them, they were all liturgical. And with the word just. <laughs> and really, word, right? <laughs> just and really. We're a bazillion times in every prayer. But we're not we're not liturgical. No, no, no. We don't repeat anything. But they repeat it everywhere. And because they're they're rightly they're imitating those leaders that they respect. And so they imitate, and that's all good. But that's what we Catholics do. We we just imitate leaders that we know are trustworthy, like Augustine and Thomas and and the psalmist and scripture and John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and uh, Catherine of Siena, those are people that we recognize as our spiritual leaders. And so we will trust that the prayers they put down are good examples for us to follow. Yeah, that's that's very well said. I think of, you know, I I this was even years before I even considered the Catholic Church as a viable option. But I remember writing an article for a little blog that I was doing that was just kind of spiritual thoughts as an evangelical at the time. It wasn't 
anything special or fancy, but I, I was working through the idea of, of the liturgy of my evangelical, uh, church service. And I didn't even know to call it a liturgy at the time, but I recognized that we were doing this, these things a certain way. You know, worship leader would play a song and then pray and then play two more songs and then pray. And then the pastor would speak and then we'd play two more songs and we'd close. And I, I wrote an article working out, well, why, why do we do it that way? Right. If we don't, that's not in the Bible anywhere. Yeah. But I was working, no, I, I was, and this was years before even considering the Catholic Church. I was thinking through these ideas of, well, why do we do it this way when that's not in the Bible? But yet we say the Bible is our rule of faith and how we're supposed to live out our faith. And that was so confusing for me, right? I know. I, I don't, I can't tell if we're running out of time or not, but I, a story from when I was a very young minister, my first church as a Presbyterian. In a small little country church, 185 members, and there it was way out in the middle. I just arrived, and they had a beautiful bell tower on this church, but they never rang it. I remember one day asking a guy, why don't you ring this church? And, and, and 10 people I asked didn't know. And then finally someone said, well, way back 30 years ago, the town flooded, and the original church was flooded out. And so the only thing that survived was the bell. And so they built this new church on high ground, and they put up a bell tower, and they put the bell. So on the very first Sunday, 30 years ago, when the church was built, they rang the bell to call everybody to church. And then the phone began to ring in the church. And the problem was that right about 100 yards from the church was a huge chicken farm. And when they rang the bell, it scared all the chickens. (laughs) And all the chickens... Went crazy inside the chicken farms and literally suffocated. And a hundred chickens suffocated that Sunday. And so the pastor said, I'm so sorry. We didn't know that. So they quit ringing the bell. 30 years later, I said, okay, why are we ringing the bell now? Because the chicken houses have been gone for 20 years. So starting the next Sunday, we began ringing the bell. That to me, that always illustrates the fact that often we do things out of habit in which we've completely forgotten why. We just do them. And in the Protestant world, there's a lot of those things that Protestants do. They don't have a long history to them, and they don't remember when they started, but this is the way we've always done it. I remember when I was a Congregationalist minister, young Congregationalist minister before I was a Presbyterian, trying to do some modification in the Worship on Sunday in the old pillars of the church, and a huff cornered me one day and said, "Listen, we're doing it the way we've always done it. If it was a, if it was good for the pilgrims, it's good enough for us." And it, it didn't matter that I could say, "Excuse me," but I can guarantee the way we worship today ain't like what the pilgrims did in the 17th. It doesn't matter. They've been doing it a certain way, and that's the way they're going to do it. That is their authority. That is their authority, and they don't look beyond it. And becoming a Catholic, my friend, the beauty of it is we have great freedom to study and to look deeply at the long history of the church, to see its the beauty of it as well as its warts, and the history of it, and see that the tracing of that authority is a foundation that we can still rest on today. <laughs> Amen. Okay, I do have one more question for you. 
You spent 20 plus years speaking to converts, helping people converting to the Catholic faith and exploring their stories. I'm wondering what advice you'd give to somebody who's interested in the Catholic Church, interested enough to say, listen to this podcast and this interview. What advice, what do you want to say to that person? Oh, well, well, first, I wouldn't presume a thing about a new listener or a repeat listener who's on the journey. I wouldn't presume a thing about their journey or about their relationship with God. Um, all I know is, and Keith, I didn't mention this earlier, but I've been doing the Journey Home program for now almost 21 years. That's a bazillion interviews. What's the number one reason that these people became Catholic? Well, we talked about authority and the beauty. But I can guarantee you, if I ask every one of those guests, including you, and said, well, why are you Catholic? You would say it was grace. <laughs> it, it wasn't our intellect. It wasn't our wisdom. It wasn't happen chance. It was the mercy and grace of God. So if somebody's listening, all I'm asking is for that person to recognize that it might be the work of grace. In other words, God's smile, God's love. And I don't in any way say just jump in. No, I say work hard at it. Study, read some good books, pray more than anything else, ask for God's guidance. Um, study those great references that trustworthy Catholics point to, like John of the Cross. The Catechism is a really blessing, I think. Read the Catechism from cover to cover. Take it very slowly, a little bit every day. Which I still do. I, I hope I do every day for the rest of my life. Just like I'm committed to every morning reading Scripture every morning for the rest of my life. I can tell you I can read Scripture over and over and over again, cover to cover. It's different every time. Same thing with the <laughs> Same thing with the And it's just beautiful. The unique, the, it holds together like no other creed that I know of. And so my challenge to anyone listening is to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit in the Catholic Church. You're going to see the scandals, and frankly, I think they're worse than we see. Because there's a reason the book of Job is in the Bible. And the reason the book of Job is in the Bible, because as it says in Sirach chapter 2, anyone that chooses to follow the Lord will encounter trials. And that's true of the book of Job, and that's true of every Catholic layman, priest, bishop, cardinal, or pope who was willing to follow Christ. They will be under a spiritual attack. The question is, are they up for it? Are they recognizing it? Are they staying spiritually aware so that they can fight the battle? Which is why Rather than being critical of our Catholic leaders, they need our prayers more than anything else because they are under a major battle. And many of them sadly seem to be failing. Lord, have mercy on our soul. So for those listening, our prayers are with you. And I, my number one goal is that you follow Jesus Christ wherever he calls you to follow him. <laughs> Amen. Fantastic. Hey, you know, this has been an absolute blessing to have you on the program. 
I'm so grateful. I really appreciate your time. It's been, I think, a fantastic episode. And where do you want to point listeners to find out more about you and the work you're doing and and what you want to share with them? Where should they go to find out more? Well, simply our website, chnetwork.org, chnetwork.org. If you go to that, you'll find out all the stuff that we do, our resources. We have an online community in which our goal is not to push, pull, or prod anybody in the church, but stand beside them. And we have a, a community online of converts and reverts and lifelong Catholics who are there to stand beside you, answer any questions you might have about the church, or if you're a lifelong Catholic and you'd like to find out how to be involved with a very uh, powerful, I think, ministry, especially to our separated brethren, you could get involved with the Coming Home Network. And so again, that's chnetwork.org. Well, that's a fantastic resource. You know, a funny thing happened to me when I was first uh, on this journey. The The Protestant pastor who first asked me a, a question about tradition versus scripture that started the whole journey for me, he he has not yet become Catholic, and that was a struggle for me because I went on to become Catholic, and, and he went on and did his own thing. But funny enough, um, as I was writing my blog, um, thinking about this this guy, I got an email, and the email was from, I think it was either the president or the assistant president or the dean, somebody in, in the executive administration of a very prominent evangelical uh, university up here in Canada, emailed me asking how they could become Catholic. And funny enough, this pastor who got me on the journey was studying for his master's at that university. And, and I thought, you know, well, I, I couldn't get him, but I got the president of his, of his seminary instead. And I pointed them in your direction years ago to chnetwork.org. And I hadn't heard from them since, but I've always been praying for that person. And who headed your direction. So it's a fantastic ministry that you have there, and the program is fantastic. And um, just thank you, you so up. much for, for, for doing that and for being here. Well, I just in, in one last thought, I was going to – I forgot, Keith, until you mentioned that, that you're up in Canada. I totally forgot about that. You know, uh, at the core, I'm Canadian. Uh, yes, you are. Name, <laughs> my last name, Grodi is an Americanized version of our original French name, which was Grandin, G-R-O-N-D-I-N. And my family emigrated from France in 1666 to Quebec, lived there on the St. Lawrence, and eventually you know, immigrated across and ended up in Michigan. And when they went to St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Erie, Michigan, when they landed, they couldn't speak English. And so their name Grandin, the ends are silent. And so that's where Grodi came from. So I'm at the core Canadian um, and French Catholic, even though we left the church. My great grandfather left the church years ago. But I have a great heart for my Canada heritage. And I'll be honest with you, it was a bit sad when I went to visit my home country, if you will, of Quebec to see the state of the church in Quebec. We need to pray for our Quebeca, Quebecois brothers and sisters. Well, you know, the one of the favorite Canadian pastimes is to claim anyone we can as Canadian. So we'll take you. <laughs> we'll take you. And funny enough, this pastor friend of mine who I just referenced actually moved up to Quebec to start an evangelical church plant out there. 
And I know a number of very good and faithful Catholics up in Quebec who are praying for him and for all their fellow uh, ex-non-Catholics. It's a different, different world over there than it used to be. But, you know, and I know that the Holy Spirit continues to work in amongst the Catholics that are still there. Yes, yes, of course, of course. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to being on this show. It's been an absolute blessing to me and I think to all my listeners as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Keith. What a great invitation and privilege. I hope to do it again sometime. Thank well, you. I'd love to have you back. Thank you so much and God bless. Same to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever else you find fine podcasts. I would appreciate all of your ratings and reviews, especially on iTunes, the podcast app. Those ratings and reviews drive up the popularity of the show and help push it out to new people. I would really appreciate that if you could take the time to leave a rating, or even better, a review. Thank you so much to my Patreons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. You guys are the absolute team that keeps this thing running. Even as little as $1 or $2 a month goes a long way to pay for hosting fees, to pay for bandwidth, to pay for all these different things, expenses that come with running a podcast. I'm so grateful to you guys. I feel so blessed, so humbled to be able to do this work. And the feeling is kind of incredible that people actually want to support this work. So thank you. Thank you guys so much for your support. If you want to support this show financially, please visit patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. I appreciate that so much. Please visit thecordialcatholic.com for show notes for my blog and articles I'm writing and sharing. Email cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I'm on Facebook at The Cordial Catholic, on Twitter at Cordial Catholic, and other places as well. Look me up. I appreciate all your feedback. I appreciate you listening, supporting the show. I appreciate so much your fasting and your prayers as well. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.